This is episode 33 of the Immunology Podcast, Academic Publishing with Dr. Mark Kaplan. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Mark Kaplan, professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine and editor-chief of Immuno Horizons, on the podcast to talk about his research and academic publishing. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and immunology news coming up, but first... Are you looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the fields of immunology and cell biology? Well, we'd like to remind our listeners to check out Stem Cell Science News, featuring the most recent top peer-reviewed research and review papers, as well as industry, policy, and science news. Stem Cell Science News provides a platform that allows researchers to stay up-to-date with their field while saving time. Subscribe for free at stemcellsciencenews.com. Hello, Jason. Hey there. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Excited about another uh, chat with you about science. Yeah. Have you gotten to submit or getting ready to submit any papers later? Not really, but, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I know that you have a lot of interesting stories to talk about your publications. Oh, I do. I mean, uh, <laughs> I submitted to Nature Communications during the pandemic. That was actually uh, quite interesting with the, uh, you could see the lag as, this, as the COVID paper started to hit and being able to get the reviews back. <laughs> and everything um, else was not important. Well, but, but then Reviewer 3 chilled out. So Reviewer 3 stopped asking for more experiments, which was nice. Oh, nice of him Because they assumed her. you couldn't go into the lab and do any of them, which was true. So, so it, it was really interesting to see. You ended up writing like, uh, I cannot do this because I cannot go in. Would you like to accept it as is? And people accepted that, which really makes me wonder how often the game of, oh, I just want to ask you to do something to make you do it is being, is happening because mm -hmm. you'll see this in papers, right? You'll see like this coherent story with like these four extra controls and side thing that, you know, some reviewer asked them to test. That's their personal theory about what's going on that the cost the paper a year to come out. I mean, sometimes you see the, the delays between first submission and resubmission and you're thinking, what? That's like 15 months. What happened in there? I've seen two or three years before. Oh my gosh. But you know, a cynical person would say, well, maybe you, you know, they all, sometimes they send these papers to per people that have similar research interests. And a cynical person would say, well, maybe reviewer number two had a similar project going and it's just stalling the progress of the competition. But I don't like to think that. I think I like to think that that doesn't happen too often. Yeah, I, I didn't do the cynical angle. I more did the people like to ask people to do work because if you're a reviewer and you just agree, you maybe haven't done your job. So you always have to find something. Oh, the review system. Why don't we go into couple of papers that actually went through the review, peer review, and they're guaranteed fresh. Our review of the peer review, guaranteed fresh or your uh, money back. All right. All right. Well, let's see here. I'll do the one that I actually printed out because I read this on an airplane recently. Um, old school. I like it. Old school. Yeah. My poor printer ink though. Like, man, these color pages. All right. So <laughs> this one's called allergen protease activated stress granule assembly and gas German defragmentation controlled interleukin 33 circulation or secretion. It's first author's Wen Chen, last author's Bing Sun. It was in Nature Immunology, and it came out. It is still in press, it looks like, on natureimmunology.org. So it hasn't, it is just out now. Okay. Okay. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have a nice fresh out of press. So um, I picked this one in part because I studied gas German D during my postdoc. Incidentally, it was a gene regulated by what my uh, protein I was studying worked on. And it's a really interesting, the gas German family are really interesting. They cause something called pyroposis, which is this poor formed uh, death. And they're generally canonically cleaved by cast spaces, go to the cell surface and make pores and kill the cell. This okay. is a part of an inflammation in response to fever or IL-1 signal. So that's that one of the ways the cast spaces work. One of the ways, right. But they've learned that the gas Germans are weird and then parts of them signal with other stuff. And there's like nuclear, or not nuclear, there's like cytoplasmic gas dermin that's signaling and the other cleave, you know, because it gets cleaved, the other uncleaved part goes and does something magical. 
and it gets really interesting really quick and also it's poorly understood um and so this gives another function for gas dermin so il33 is an epithelial drive cytokine um, respond it depends on response environmental insult that can drive the allergy response in some cases um, what this paper shows is that you have the stress granulin assemblies and they do this through a stress granule enzyme um, called let me pull the name up that, that, that they mostly peepin is what they mostly use in the paper um, but using mostly cell systems and then some work in mouse lung and then some human samples to kind of translate it um, they show that that when what's really interesting is that there's gas dermins usually cleave to a 35 gas dermin D. But I'm just going to say gas dermin at this point because that gets too long. But this gas dermin, because there's A, B, C, D, gas dermin D cleaves to a 35 kilodalton. And that's usually what's involved in pyroposis. Um, but they find that they're in cell death. But they find that there's another cleavage. It's 40 kilodaltons long. And this creates a different pore that is required for secretion of IL-33. So when, when they're signaling with IL, when they're signaling that says it's an IL time for an IL-33 party, it's made in the nuclea, it's made in the nucleosome area and then exported to the cytoplasm, but doesn't get out. And so they show step one, the stress granule assembly leads to creation, but not secretion, but the gas dermin is needed for secretion. And so they do a lot of cool work. And I think why this kind of has the impact that it does is one, they have a gas dermin D knockout mouse, which they just got from someone. And I will say boo on the paper in one way, because it just cites and says this gas dermin D was received from this person. And there's no information or citation of the mouse to look up its features. Uh -huh. And it's not cited in the paper at all. I was looking for a gas dermin D mouse, knockout mouse and never had one and was actually actively looking to generate one with CRISPR, um, and it was a mess. So the fact that they have one is interesting. So that is one issue. Now, second, so that's my only ding on the paper, but what they did is they actually mapped out and point mutated, so they made fractional sizes of the gas dermin of different kilodaltons matching the 40 and other ones, had those expressed, shows those recapitulated, the downstream functions and turning IL-33 secretion differently than the 35 kilodalton size one, and then showed, hey, this is the cleavage region using point mutations, and this is what's really necessary. So they really mapped out, this is the site that gets cleaved, this is the site that causes it. And they also showed it's caspase one and caspase 11 independent. So it is not driven by the regular caspase targets. Is that expected? Do we so under which circumstances do the epithelial cells make IL thirty three, and who other which other cells make IL thirty three? Well, so um, so a lot of cells can make it. It's usually under uh, epithelial injury, environmental insult. Okay. So when it senses macrophages and everything else flooding in because some damage has happened, they'll release it. But then it would be so. Yeah, I guess. This means that because if you have caspase activation, that probably means the cell won't be there much longer. Right. And so this is a caspase 111 independent pathway. They don't know what cleaves it, though. So there's something else cleaving gas dermin to the site, but it follows usual putative cleavage binding site patterns, right? So they did analysis, mm -hmm. said, okay, these other cleavage sites could be that aren't the ones we already know about. Da 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 da. Uh, and they show it's caspase 1 and 11 independent through knockout mice and all these other inhibitors. But you can cleave it. And the cleaved one, if you make it and induce it, does the same thing. And it releases it. And they show it goes to the cell surface and does all the things. Okay. So this is how epithelial cells... Release IL-33 is through a novel mechanism of gas dermin, which has usually been associated with poor forming cell death. Very interesting. Yeah. What a, what a twist. Yes. What a twist. It opened our eyes to new things. But I'm dumb. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what? I think I'll take over from now uh, with my first presentation. You keep working on your joke, Jay. You're, you're doing great, Jason. Um, I will talk about uh, a slightly different topic, which is immune tolerance. And this, this really nice uh, short paper from the lab of Mark Jenkins, by the way, a former 
guest in the in the um, show. Uh, first author Soon Wook Hong and was published in Nature uh, on the 6th of July. And his title, Immune Tolerance of Food, is mediated by layers of CD4 T cell dysfunction. And basically, it's a very nice overview of looking into the generation of tolerance towards peptides that come in the diet. And he kind of tries to um, answer the, the question of why are we not mounting responses against all of this uh, proteins and all of these things that we consume with our diet that are obviously foreign antigens. And we have developed methods to you know, prevent an activation or immune response against the food that we eat. And they they kind of look into, uh, they have a, a little battery of three different peptides that they um, give to the mice orally. And they, they feed the mice and they look into the T, T cell responses in these mice and they characterize these T cells that come up, particular CD4 T cells that come out of these uh, of this uh, feeding. And they compare it to the situation in which you have the same peptides that are actually administered to, together with a cholera toxin that initiates kind of an inflammatory response. And so they start first with... Um, with a, a peptide that comes from wheat, uh, that is called uh, well, from from a protein called uh, gliadin uh, that comes from wheat, and they show that basically if you have mice that consume this protein for the first time, they end up having in the secondary uh, uh, lymphoid organs around the gut and the liver, particularly you have a expansion, a small expansion of a subset of CD4 T cells which they measure with uh, tetramers for MHC2, and they, that are, they have a kind of a different, there are a couple of different populations that they can identify within this population, this, this, this reactive T cells. They are surprised because they see a small population of cells that are, uh, that are expressing uh, uh, Treg, uh, uh, so FOXP3 positive cells. They see a small, a very small percentage of cells that are expressing follicular helper-like features. Very, very few cells that are expressing Rorgama T or TVET or other kind of TH lineage um, mediators. And they have most of the cells actually develop. They are proliferating, but they're developing into what they call a TH lineage negative uh, cells that don't have any particular, they're not expressing any particular lineage marker. And these cells become kind of dominant in this response. So basically their protocol, they do three feedings. And at the end of these three feedings, they, they see this and they, they, they see this appearance of these cells that seem to not have any particular profile. And, and so most of them are CD44 low. So they're not kind of like naive, like they don't see them very activated, but they have proliferated and they, they can see that the number, their numbers increases. Uh, and what is very interesting is that if they keep feeding the mice, so instead of three feeds, they do six feeds, what they see is basically an inc increment in the percentage of regulatory T cells, of T cells expressing FOXP3 at the expense of this lineage negative cell. So they see that these cells first become kind of anergic, and then they can transition into a more regulatory T cell phenotype if you keep adding re repeated stimulation. Um, so <clears throat> the interesting is that I think what is really interesting is that, um, that they also see the show that this, uh, this lineage negative population does not respond very well to afterwards to a different type of, 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 um, uh, immune stimulation. For example, if they do, uh, a, a skin, a hypersensitivity uh, assay, so the, the sorry, delayed type hypersensitivity assay in the skin with, with front adjuvant, or if they then uh, immunize the mice with poly-IC and the peptide itself. So they basically end up really characterizing these, uh, these cells are rather inert and rather incapable of, of proliferating further, and they become a rather stable population that just don't really uh, 
that they cannot really very well respond to the peptide lo after, long after these initial sets of, of, of tolerance, uh, of, of kind of initial tolerogenic administrations. So in basically what they show is that although, and the, the, these populations, particularly the T-Rape populations, are particularly present in the, in, the, in the gut and in the lamina propria and in the colon, and that uh, most of the lineage negative cells are found predominantly in non-secondary lymphoid organs, uh, and that there's this kind of also separation in the in the distribution of these cells, which could be maybe related to the fact that cells, if you're having this constant uh, stimulation, maybe T rays have more access to this uh, to this stimulation in the gut, and maybe this re repeated uh, exposure increases their numbers. Um, and they think that in principle is because of the lack of inflammation that comes together with the feeding with these peptides results in the differentiation and activation of cells under non-inflammatory conditions with low IL-2 um, um, concentrations. So they don't, uh, they don't really get to proliferate, to activate very well. Uh, they also, therefore, some of them get to differentiate into T follicular helper cell likes. Uh, because also IL-2 is not present, which that helps their differentiation. And that basically, this generates cells that are rather inert. And this is one of the mechanisms by which tolerance can be generated. What is important to say is that they've been working on polyclonal population, because a lot of the work so far was focused on transgenic mice with, with single uh, TCR specificities. But in this case, they're working with polyclonal populations that are responding to this of peptides of, of choice. Interesting. So the paper, though, kind of has a controversial title on CD4 T cell dysfunction. Is this really dysfunction if it's deriving immune tolerance, which can be a good thing? Or is it just what we classically think of as dysfunction is actually something important for tolerance? And maybe we've been branding dysfunction wrong sometimes. No, because I think this dysfunction is different from like dysfunction in cancer, for example. That is the consequence, usually consider the consequence of like very prolonged antigen stimulation or dysfunction like viral uh, situations. I think this dysfunction comes from a inappropriate priming of the cells to start with. Because as the, the presentation of these antigens uh, are done without any, with minimal cost stimulatory signals or IL-6 or other kind of um, cytokines that induce T-cell polarization and also very little IL-2, these cells, um, especially I think the, 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 the low cost stimulation results in cells that don't get proper uh, TCR cost stimulation signals and then they don't develop into fully activated cells to start with and that we know that that can lead to energy directly, so to say. So I think it's, it's dysfunction in the way that they don't, yeah, they've stopped functioning as T-cells because they, they, they cannot really respond to their antigen, but I don't think it's dysfunction in the sense of other uh, context. All right, that makes sense. All right, well, to keep on the party here, I know we could talk about T-cells all day um, because you, you love them. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go and talk about the brain a little bit here. I don't even have a good segue. Um, except for thinking about things. I don't know. All right. So this is enhancing GAT3 and thalamic astrocytes promotes resilience to brain injury in rodents. First author is Francis Chu. Last is author is Janine T. Paz, Science Translational Medicine. It came out the 6th of July. So. Um, this paper goes way more into neuroscience than I usually ever delve, but also has some really cool immune components to it. Um, so there's this thalamic astrogliosis, which is when astrocytes in the thalamus become reactive, and that has changes that in the, that reactive changes affects brain function. That's a concept or a thing, and it's a thing that's been seen in uh, brain lesions for people with traumatic brain injury strokes, seizures, other things. And they're like, well, is this cause or effect? Is this, le is this, and what well, that's not known. We know it's associated with badness, but not that it can cause badness. And so this paper attempts to figure out if it causes badness. 
basically. Um, so they remind people that it's found in history uh, in postmortem humans with cortical injury, aka traumatic brain injury, and they also show it in a mouse model of traumatic brain injury, which we're just gonna gloss over. Um, they had photoembolic stroke and then controlled cortical impact in a somatosensory cortex, a mm. model of TBI. We already had that in a, in a paper some episodes ago. Yeah. They did the, yeah. the yeah. T-Reg savage yep. salvage. Yeah, no, savage. Savage is right. So the typically a marker is of this occurring is astrocyte marker glial fibrillary acidic protein, GFAP, um, that it goes up in these cases. And so they did a viral model. To, they tried to make a model first. So step one is they show they can make a model that's an adenovirus-associated viral construct enhanced, expressing enhanced GFP from a trunk under a truncated promoter of the GFAP. So if GFAP goes up, this will also glow, right? So signs of astrocyte gliosis. But the virus itself causes the gliosis. So it's, it, they inject it unilaterally into the ventrovasilar somatosensory thalamus. And the cool thing about the brain is if you inject stuff on one side, it doesn't affect the other. So you have an internal control. That's one of the cool things about neuroscience. They show it does indeed cause astrogliocytosis. And that it then, then they dive into neuroscience like physiology, electromicrocircuit excitability, a bunch of stuff and methods that I only kind of remember from physiology classes, patch clamping, brain slices, and a bunch of things. But if you sum it all up, which is our, our duties for our listeners here, they show that uh, when you do that, the brain is more excitable from the thalamic astrogliosis, and that can lead to seizures. So if you give mice a drug, Low, that can cause seizures, but way lower dose that shouldn't cause seizures. In a control mouse, it doesn't. In these mice, it does. And it can do that for nine months, seven months after you cause the initial injury. So it's a persistent problem for them. Right? So you do the, the virus. There's no virus left. They have this astrogliocytosis. It lasts a long time and it leads to susceptibility to seizure for a really long time. Um, and so that is the first time that anyone's been able to show that this, that this gliocytosis is causative of seizures so then they try to figure out how because there's different levels of tonicity they go into the GABA pathway and they do and astrocytes take up GABA through GAT1 and GAT3 and they link all of this through um, they see GAT3 expression um, is significantly down in the injured part of the brains that they cause and they show that if they induce GAT3 this effect goes away the susceptibility goes away which makes sense given how GABA works in neurosignaling. So they then link that basically astrogliocytosis drops GAT3. That is what causes the problems in the brain. And if you enhance GAT3 in the, this tissue, you reduce seizures and mortality in a cortical injury model in mice. But then GAT3 takes up GABA or, or, or right, it takes GABA? up It takes up GABA. So it would be an excess of GABA because there's no GAT3 because the cells died. Right. Well, no, there's no, they didn't die. They got reactive changes. Okay. Ah, okay. And so there's no, the reactive changes, there's less uptake of GAT3. So now you're hyper excitable. And so you have problems. Oh, but If okay. you take it up and get rid of it, you're less excitable. I'm like, your brain should be. Okay. So that would be a solution to reduce the... Uh, Post-traumatic brain injury, GAT3 shenanigans. Or post-traumatic brain injury, hyperexcitability, how do you overcome that? Something like this. And how long do people often, like in, in human subjects, what is the length of the sequelae when it comes to hyperexcitability? Uh, so in mice, it persisted for at least seven months. We don't know how long it okay. persists in people because we just have brain slices that we look at after they're dead. But then do you have, because if, if, a, if a person, so let's say a person gets traumatic brain injury and then they get uh, this GAT3 dysregulation, that would cause seizures or this would cause problems. Yeah, so we know that people with traumatic brain injury are more prone to seizures. 
Okay. Right. Okay. But we didn't know if that's a thing and this injury pattern is a thing. And if they're just both, if anything's causal to anything else, this really establishes mm-hmm. the cause that you see with this astroglyocytosis is driving the disease pathology. Okay. Very interesting. Um, so then to wrap up today, uh, last paper of the day, and now we're moving to uh, B cells. So my A cells are the T cells, but then I get my B cells. Are the B cells. And this paper from Immunity published on the 12th of July uh, Viral infection engenders bona fide and bystander sepsis of lung resident memory B cells through a permissive mechanism. First authored Claude Grégoire, I guess, French, uh, from the lab of Mauro Gacha from the Center of Immunology at Marseille Lumini in France. Uh, and I know this, I, I pronounced it like this because he's Argentinian, so that's how you pronounce his name. So before someone, some, someone corrects me. Uh, so in this case, they studied, they tried to characterize and look a little bit closer into the populations of lung resident memory B cells that come up in response to an airway, airway viral infection. And they have models with mostly influenza virus. And, and they also sprinkle a little bit of COVID at the end of SARS-CoV-2, you know, just to keep up with the times. And they, what they find is that, so they look into, they try to really differentiate memory B cells and they define them by, by, by B cells that have undergone uh, uh, germinals, that have become part of germinal centers and that have undergone somatic hypermutation. And in order to really identify these cells, they have a mouse in which they they have the uh, the enzyme, so the gene the codes for the enzyme, uh, the aid activation induced cytidine deaminase, which is the enzyme responsible for somatic hypermutation in B cells. Uh, that is, is so the the promoter of the of this enzyme is together with an Cree. They have a Cree system that is also activated by tamoxifen and results in the recombination and expression of YFP. So basically what they have is a system in which during a specific time in which tamoxifen is administered to the mice, they can permanently mark B cells that have undergone somatic hypermutation or have activated the kind of the, uh, the yes, hypermutation through expression of aid. Um, and so they have these mice and basically what they do is they infect them with influenza and then they add the tamoxifen around six to between six and 10 days after infection and in which they are looking into, um, marking those cells that are undergoing, uh, that are becoming the memory, uh, the, becoming part of the memory pool of these mice. And so then they look into the YFP cells that, uh, that, uh, that come up from this, from this mice. And they um, characterize these groups. And what they see, and I think it's very interesting, is they basically they see uh, in the case they compare uh, B cells that are resident in the lung, so they define in the lung, uh, B cells are defined in the lymph nodes, uh, the uh, close to the to the lung, and also they have some some spleen, so also compare. But I think the most interesting information comes from the lymph node and the lung, and they find basically three clusters that they can really nicely model using CCR6 and CXCR3 receptors. And they find basically a cluster, two clusters of cells expressing CCR6, and then one of them also expresses CXCR3. And these two CCRC positive clusters are kind of what they really uh, find as kind of memory, memory B cells. Both of these clusters have show signs of, of participation in, uh, in germinal centers. And they, for example, if you block CD40 ligand interactions, they, they, these cells don't form that well. So they really are, they need uh, the whole, the whole uh, yeah, germinal center um, uh, shebang. And they, uh, and these two clusters, they tend to differentiate towards CD93 positive plasma cells, if they take them and they culture an ex vivo in a, in a, in a kind of an ex, in, a in vitro situation uh, with feeder cells and, and, and activating with CD40 ligand, IL-21, and they end up having kind of these cells 
uh, migrate towards a plasma cell uh, like a phenotype. So they're not, they're mostly uh, kind of, they're not making other memory kind of memory cells or like um, long lived memory. They're really right there, ready to make antibody specific, uh, uh, making antibodies uh, upon activation. But then within this, this, this two, this CCR6 positive cells, they have an, a, a, a separation, which is CXCR3. And here's where I think is very interesting is the, fi the fact that they find that only CXCR3 positive cells really contain what they call bona fide um, antigen-specific B cells. So B cells that are actually recognizing viral antigens that they're, they're making and upon activation they make antibodies that recognize hemat uh, hematoglutinin or, or nucleoprotein from the, the virus. And this CXCR3 negative subset, they are memory B cells as defined, but they don't seem to be specific against any of the viral uh, antigens. And they have a certain kind of restricted effector capacity, but they're there and they're proliferating and they become maybe 50% of the overall YFP positive population of like the, 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 the mutated and, and, and chain switched population. So the question is like, where are these cells coming from? Why do you have this huge expansion of B cells that are not being stimulated with antigen? Because if you think of a germinal center, these germinal centers are mediated by T cells that are presenting antigen to the B cells and the B cells mutate and they react and they, they receive signaling. But if these cells are not reactive to any of these antigens, where are they coming from? And so they basically, they make the point that these are probably B cells that are just close enough to the real memory B cells, to the real antigen-specific B cells, to benefit from particularly IL-4, which is very important for kind of the development of the B cells uh, towards a memory uh, a subset. So these B cells become bystanders and they benefit from the, activations, the activation environment that the real B cells generate, the real memory B cells. And... They suggest that because they express higher levels, they find that they express higher levels of FC receptors, they might be uh, beneficial and contributing to the overall germinal centers by capturing more immune complexes that have the, the, the antigen of, of the particular antigen that is being presented. And that's maybe how they are contributing. And that's why they're still there because in the end, they're kind of taking space in the germinal centers. But they might actually be contributing to the activation of the real memory cells by bringing over more immune complexes due to their higher expression of FC receptors. So in the end, you have, as you also see in the case of T cells, right? you have T cells that are really, you, you can act, really detect specificity in their TCRs against the, the antigens of that you're studying. But then there's a bunch of T cells that you don't really know what they're doing there. And there are some of them that you know for, for a fact that they're not specific against anything in the environment. So it might be that you, know, you can see this also in the case of B cells that are resident in the in the in the lungs upon uh, airway infections. Interesting. Have were they able to map the distance at which this effect falls off? Like how close does it have to be? Mm, not really. So they didn't do like very specific experiments. They do say if they inhibit IL four, they if they block IL four they have a reduction in this bystander memory cells. Uh, so it does seem that it's to be kind of a um, soluble IL-4, seems to be very important. Um, but I, they haven't done really like kind of physical separation, look at the physical separation of the cells because they just see that they're all there and they're also going into the, the germinal centers. And they show that because uh, blocking germinal center formation uh, through CD40, CD40 ligand blockage that reduces the generation of both of these subsets so both of them are gaining their activation by by some cycling into the a germinal center so they're, they're gonna be too far away germinal centers are not that big that's interesting more and more crosstalk yeah yeah the complexity is staggering it is all right well we're going to be speaking to Dr. Mark Kaplan in just a moment. But before we get to that, if you're enjoying the interviews on this podcast, we invite you to read more interviews on the Stem Cell Technologies website in the Immunology Profile Series, 
immunologists tell their stories, discuss their research, and voice their thoughts and opinions on current topics in immunology. You can find these all at stemcell.com slash immunoprofiles. Continuing uh, our show today, we are joined by Professor Mark Kaplan. Professor Kaplan is chair of the Department of Microbiology and Immunology and the director of basic sciences uh, for the Brown Center for Immunotherapy at the University of Indiana. Beside his academic position, he's editor-in-chief of Immunohorizons, which is the open access journal from the American Association of Immunologists. Mark, welcome to the Immunology Podcast. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here today. So I think uh, we there's like two basic things, we, two basic topics we would like to talk with you today. On the one hand, you have very uh, exciting research on uh, particularly uh, helper T-cell subtests. Uh, one T-cell subtest that I found very interesting with this TH9 cells, so maybe we can talk a little bit about this, 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 uh, this guys, and also about your work as editor-in-chief of Immunohorizons that uh, is, has, was kind of conceived to respond to a niche or to kind of a particular area of immunological research, and I think it would be very nice to hear more about that. But maybe we can just quickly start talking about uh, your experience uh, with uh, understanding TH uh, diversity and your role on particular TH9 cells, which I would say, if if I may, that they took a little bit longer to be kind of characterized and and their their influence in the immune response being better understood. I think like TH1, TH2 were such uh, already for so many years part of the canonical um, organization of TH responses, and then somehow we missed IL9 and we missed TH9 cells. So maybe. Let's just talk about those first. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I guess I can give you a little bit of perspective that I got interested in, in T-helper cells from my postdoctoral work. Um, and when we started working on um, some of the stat proteins that are downstream of cytokines that, that initiate T-helper cell differentiation and, and worked in that area for, for a long period of time. Um, and, and really got interested in IL-9 and TH9 cells about, no, 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 about 10, 12 years ago. And we had seen a couple of the papers that came from um, Gita Stockinger's lab and Vijay Kutcher's lab that really kind of reestablished IL-9 secreting T cells as, a, as an area. And, and we were interested because we potentially had a transcription factor that might be contributing to the development of these subsets of cells. And, and that's what our, our first publication in that area really was, was describing Pew.1 as, as a transcription factor that promoted TH9 cells. I think, as you said, one of the, one of the reasons that, that IL-9 or TH9 cells had been neglected for a long time is that we really didn't know very much about what IL-9 did. And IL-9 was discovered back in the in the mid 80s, it was cloned. It had some functions ascribed to it, but in the broader sense of the immune response, it was a little bit more difficult to say exactly what IL-9 was doing. It was maybe promoting allergic inflammation. Um, and, and those are some of the questions that we've tried to focus on more recently in some of our work. So to go on a little bit further, I'm a big fan of the gamma delta T cells and the role of T cells in wound healing. And I was wondering if you could dive in a little bit about that. Um, personally, just because I love understanding immunology regulation of healing. Sure. So in terms of healing, I, I'm, I'm really not sure what IL-9 may contribute to the process. Um, there have been a couple of reports that suggest that IL-9 may have some role in immunity in, in the skin um, and potentially in some other um, areas. But in terms of wound healing, it really hasn't been characterized very well. Um, we did have a publication recently that focused on gamma delta cells in, in wound healing, and that arose out of our interest in looking at allergic inflammation in the skin and um, showing um, a couple of years ago that IL-4, IL as it promoted allergic inflammation, also seem to impair the wound healing process in the skin. 
And one of the things that we discovered was that it actually seemed to eliminate a lot of the um, epidermal gamma delta T cells from the skin um, within most models anyways. And, um, and since that population of cells had previously been shown to contribute to wound healing, um, that was something that we pursued. And essentially what we showed is that um, if you block IL-4, then, um, then you don't have this loss of gamma delta T cells when you have um, development of allergic inflammation. And, and that some of the cytokines that the gamma delta T cells secrete are really important for wound healing. And so in the context of allergic inflammation, if you reintroduce um, uh, some of those factors and the one that we worked with in the recent report was FGF7, um, then you can actually recover that healing response. And in, even in the absence of, of gamma delta T cell recovery. And, and so that's something that could have potential therapeutic applications um, in allergic patients that um, have defects in wound healing, that there may be cytokine therapies that could help with that. Um, and, and that's something that we're, we're looking at a little bit more as to what FGF7 might actually be regulating within the, um, within the skin, within the keratinocyte response. Just coming back a little bit, sorry, to the IL-9, IL because I think we didn't get to that point. So what exactly? So we say it took us a long time. It was not very clear, but I think now it's pretty clear that IL-9, as you said, has an uh, important role to play in allergic inflammation. But then who are the cells? So we know that TH, TH9 cells make IL-9. Uh, we know that other cells also make IL-9. Who are responding to this cytokine? And yeah, what makes IL-9 different from other uh, allergic-related allergy-related cytokine? Right, and and so I mean I think that's that's really a critical question, and that's what we've been focusing on ans on answering. Um, one of the first cell populations that was identified as being IL-9 responsive are mast cells, and I think that they clearly have um, a role in terms of the IL-9 biological response. Um, but you do have to look at models where you're clearly looking at mast cell dependent functions. And a lot of the models of allergic inflammation don't necessarily require mast cells for their development. Um, what we've described in a couple of papers that have come out recently are that macrophages are one of the other big responding populations, at least within the lung environment. Um, and we showed that both in the context of allergic inflammation um, and in the context of, of lung tumor growth. And, um, and in both of those situations, the, the macrophages really seem to be the key IL-9 responsive cell that mediates the, the immune response. And so in the absence of, of macrophages that respond to IL-9, you don't get tumors growing in the lung. Um, or you don't get the the full allergic um, inflammation phenotype. Is there is there a master switch you found that makes a macrophage IL nine responsive or not? That no, we haven't, and I think that's a good question. Um, one of the things that we've seen is that it seems to be really chronic exposure to the allergen, and it may be a more chronic stimulation phenotype that leads to IL nine receptor expression. Um, within naive mice, we really don't see very much expression. So it's certainly a response to some sort of inflammatory uh, development within within the lung tissue. Um, that may be true in the in the tumor situation as well. Just to to uh, for me to understand, in this case, these macrophages, what kind of phenotype do they have? Are they inflammatory or more like tissue repair? Uh, well, I think from, from what we've seen, um, they do seem to have more of a tissue repair. Um, and, you know, we don't want to say M2 because macrophage phenotypes are more complicated than that, but, but they do, do seem to be shifted more to that spectrum. One of the, the big targets that we identified as being downstream of IL-9 was arginase-1. 
And, and that's one of the classic M2 markers, but we don't see other M2 markers that are IL-9 induced. Um, and it seems that a lot of the biology that we've been studying seems to be as arginase one dependent as it is IL-9 dependent. And so it really may be a, um, the major downstream factor that, that we're looking at for function. So you mentioned arginase, M1 versus M2. How about MDSC, just to complete our, our circuit here? Do we think there is any MDSC action going on with an IL-9 process? I mean, they're another suppressor, so they shouldn't cause allergies, but God knows. Right, right. right. So in the tumor model, we did look at those. Um, they did not have the same level of IL-9 receptor as macrophages and inflammatory monocytes did. Um, and and we didn't see that they were expressing very much arginase either. Um, so, you know, they're clearly active within the tumor situation, but I don't think they're really critical for the for the IL-9 circuit. Okay. I think, well, there's clearly still a lot to understand about the, the, the influence of IL-9 on immune responses. And I think it's also very interesting to see it in, yeah, for example, tumor responses, uh, because we always think of IL-9 just like in airways or in uh, other contexts. So I think it's definitely important to look at that at all angles. But I think that maybe we can have, like, do a little uh, switch and talk about your work as ch editor-in-chief of Immuno Horizons. Um, so as I mentioned, this is the open access journal from the American Association of Immunologists. And maybe you can talk to us a little bit about, because you were part of the, of the start of the journal. What, what, uh, what's the, the motivation from the AAI to, to start this journal kind of next to the, the flagship journal, Journal of Immunology? And what is the, the, the need or what is the, 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 the space that you're hoping to contribute to? Right, right. So, um, so Immuno Horizons started in 2017 um, and I was part of the initial editorial board and I, I became editor-in-chief in 2020. Um, and initially Immuno Horizons was conceived to, to be a capture place for articles that were not, um, I guess, not acceptable or not ready for prime time in the Journal of Immunology. Um, and what we'd seen as, as a journal before that was that many of the papers that were decided to be not acceptable for, for Journal of Immunology were then going on to be published in other journals. Um, and and we thought, well, maybe we can try and and capture some of that um, segment and and you know keep it within the the AI family um, and really have a journal that's geared towards something different. And I think what what we've developed is the idea that we're looking for science which is sound, which is performed well, um, is appropriately controlled and that the conclusions in the paper are supported by, by the data that's actually in the paper, but it's okay if it's descriptive, or it's okay if there's no mechanism, or um, if there's you know, a new reagent that isn't described in great detail, that may be okay too. So I, I, I think what we're trying to develop is maybe the the model that was originally part of PLOS One to have you know, any work that is really scientifically sound and it doesn't need to have a major impact. And, um, and I think that's what we've been, been moving towards over the last couple of years. Um, and so one of the things that I think is, is really important is that when authors submit a paper to the Journal of Immunology, if the editors at the Journal of Immunology decide that it's not appropriate, they will actually consult with the Immuno Horizons editors, and we will take a look at the paper and decide if we think that it's going to be a good candidate for Immuno Horizons. And if we decide yes, then the authors, when they get the decision letter from the Journal of Immunology, will actually get um, an included decision saying, 
the editors from Mina Horizons have looked at your article, they think it would be appropriate for transfer. And if you follow the suggestions that they have, that um, you know, the, the, you can transfer your article without too much problem. <clears throat> and I think what's really good about that is that the editors have already looked at it. We really try and say which comments of the JI reviewers need to be addressed and which ones don't. And, um, and then if they revise their article and transfer it, then whether it's going to be accepted is really an editorial decision at that point. So we use the, the reviews from the JI and, um, and the responses from the authors. And, and then the editors are really able to make a decision at that point. And, you know, I will say that if an, author, if an author decides to transfer and they revise the article as suggested, that it is highly likely that it will be accepted to Immune Horizons. And I think this is the, the benefit that if they were to go to another journal, that they would clearly go into the review process all over again. And so this is not only much easier, but, but much faster because we can make the decision based on the reviews that have already been done. So with this shunt, do you guys also have a shunt earlier on? Like you get the article, it's not going to go out to review because the editor for JI goes, not, not worth it to even go to review. And then they kick it to you immediately. Is that also a possible path? It happens. And, and I will say, you know, the, the philosophy of the JI has always been we, we like to review almost everything because it's a society journal. We don't like to have too many desk rejects. Um, but there are a few cases where um, something is clearly not going to meet the bar for JI or it's out of scope of the JI. And, and yes, they do pass those over to us and, and we will take a look at those as well. But if they haven't been reviewed yet, then we will um, suggest that they could be transferred to Immune Horizons, but then they would clearly need to go up for review at Immune Horizons so that there is at least some peer review somewhere in the pipeline. Just, just mentioned it a moment ago that, well, of course, we know that both JI and Immune Horizons are journals from a from a from a, a scientific society which is nowadays given the, the 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 market and given the the journals that are so many of them are belong to, to companies for profit organizations i just have like a kind of a philosophical question to ask where do how do you perceive the importance of these kind of journals that are still part of their nonprofit, they're part of their scientific associations. I think you have, well, AAI, you also have the AAIS, uh, so with science and all the science uh, journals. What, what do you think the role of this society journals is in today's environment? Well, I, I think it really plays a very important role. And I think that, um, you know, money that comes into to support either the Journal of Immunology or Immuno Horizons beyond costs of, of actually producing the journals goes back to, to help the society. And, and a lot of the um, money that's, that comes into the society goes back to its members. Um, we support a lot of travel awards to come to the AI annual meeting but also to other small regional meetings we provide travel awards to, um, to some international meetings. And, and I think that's you know, a real benefit of membership and a real duty of the, of the journals in the field that we can be part of the society, that we are of the society and for the society. And, um, you know, and I think we're, we're not doing it to, to um, just generate money for a company, that it really is benefiting the membership. We have better conferences and better attendance. And, um, you know, and I think, I think the awards are not only monetarily important for a lot of the trainee members, but, you know, also it's something that shows that they were competitive for an award and something to, to put on their CVs that I think helps them in their careers. So along those lines, how do you think Immuno Horizons has um, been taken to by the market, so to speak, thus far? Like, what's the response been? 
by uh, scientists in the community? Where do you see it going soon? Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I think it's it's still slowly building, um, and and I think that um, you know when we look at the number of papers that are published year over year, it's increasing um, every year, um, and so I think that's a positive sign. Um, and I think that we are starting to capture a larger portion of these um, articles that are turned down by, by the JI. Um, and I will say that at this point, we're getting um, of, of authors that receive an offer to transfer to Immune Horizons, I would say about 40 to 50% of them will, will take that offer. And, um, you know, and I think that's pretty good, but I think that's also a number that we can try and improve over the next couple of years. Um, but I think also trying to, to get more de novo submissions is going to help as well. And, and that's something that I think is a little bit more challenging, um, partially because Immune Horizons does not have an impact factor yet. And, and I think a lot of people really look for that in terms of deciding where they want to submit articles to. Um, and so that's certainly something that we've been working on. Um, and, and it's a, a multi-year, multi-process, um, uh, I, I guess, to get to the point of, of actually having an impact factor. But, um, you know, I think what, what I can say is that when we do have authors that are publishing in, the, in Immune Horizons, that they seem to be very happy with the process. Um, it, it, it is very seamless in terms of the transfer, um, and we really try to be very helpful to the authors in telling them exactly what they need to do to fix a paper. And, um, and I think that that type of instruction is also really helpful to make sure that, you know, they're not wasting a lot of time and or money on, on things that don't need to be done and really addressing exactly what needs to be fixed to to make it appropriate for new horizons. So a streamline, I think that's very important, streamline publishing uh, kind of directions are, it's very important because, yeah, how many people have had a lot of issues getting uh, through all of the, the different hoops that need to be jumped. Um, for example, as an example of research, your, your group has recently submitted, uh, uh, has a, a, a publication, Immuno Horizons. Maybe you can quickly uh, go over it just to show our listeners what is the kind, I think it was a good example of the type of research that Immuno Horizons is looking for. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I, I mean, I think, I think broadly where, you know, as I said, that a lot of the The criticisms of, of research from other journals are exactly the type of descriptors that we want to see in Immune Horizon. So if, if it's descriptive or limited scope or um, the results are just not that exciting. Um, so, you know, if, if somebody, for example, generated a knockout mouse and it didn't have a phenotype, then that would be something that could be written up for Immune Horizons. If somebody, um, if a group was looking at a a type of therapy, and the therapy didn't really have that much of an effect, then that might be something that would be appropriate for Immune Horizons. Um, we had an article in Immune Horizons a couple of years ago that um, was comparing a couple of the uh, reporter mice that have been generated for IL-9, and something that was very important to us. And, and essentially what we did was very descriptive because we ran the two reporters through a number of assays and, and looked at which reporter was better and which cell type. And, um, you know, and the results were, were fairly clear that one of them was actually underreporting for, um, for T cells. And that has an impact on how we um, look at some of the previously published results and, and what we're thinking of in terms of absolute numbers of, of what IL-9 positive cells are. So that was important. Um, we had another paper that was published last year. Um, we're using the model that we have of atopic dermatitis. Um, we had crossed them to um, a strain of mouse that was deficient in one of the glycosyl transferases that are important for um, selectin ligand formation. And what we saw 
was, you know, not only that there was a protective effect, but that there was a difference between males and females in, in terms of, of the uh, protective effect. And, um, and that really was, was very interesting. And that also is the kind of thing that we're looking for in immune horizons. If you, you know, for example, see a difference in whatever response is being examined uh, between males and females, but, you know, you don't know what the mechanism is, or, um, you know, you don't really want to look at, at uh, what the mechanism is in more depth, then that's something that might be um, appropriate for immune horizons. And I think, I think that the, the challenge is really trying to get people to appreciate what that, that work that really does have limited scope um, can be published. You know, we always like to think of, you know, what's the cool story? What's going to be the big breakthrough? And, and we obviously want to do that, but not everything that we do works out that way. And, and I think that, you know, for experiments that don't really show what we think they were going to show, um, or, you know, maybe just the results are not that exciting, that that can still be published. And I think that still has value to the community. Um, and, you know, even negative results can have value because it stops people from wasting time in avenues that might not be fruitful. And I think that, you know, we have a responsibility to the community to do that. And I think with NIH now pushing to publish or report all of the data from any studies that you've done that have been grant supported, that Immune Horizons might be a destination for that because we um, you know, are not looking for a complete story. We're looking for results that um, if the experiments are done well, then, then I think we're interested in publishing those. Do you have a paper or two or three or however many is appropriate to mention um, that really stand out in the time that you've been the editor or since Amino Horizons uh, came to be that really, really like, man, it's great that we had this and look at the impact that it's had since we got it out there? I think that one of the areas that is, is maybe underappreciated is the importance of immunology in, um, in other species. And, you know, of course, the vast majority of work that's done are mice and, and humans. But, you know, we, we have learned a lot of immunology from looking at other species, um, some from invertebrates. Um, I did my Ph.D. work looking at chickens. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that there, there are a lot of other species that really provide um, an interesting window to look at how immune systems evolve. Um, very often in, in parallel using very different mechanisms for diversification and antigen recognition. And, and so, you know, some of those articles can be a little bit more difficult to develop mechanism for. And, and there have been a few that, um, that you know, have, have been published in Immune Horizons. And, you know, and I, I think there was another study that, that I was a co-author on um, where they were looking at the effects of, of STAT4 deficiency on um, development of autoantibody responses. And for the most part, there really wasn't that much of an impact. Um, there was a couple of assays where there was a, a minor response. But again, not much, of a, not much of a phenotype, but all of the work was really extremely high quality. And so, um, you know, having a a place where that can be published and appreciated is important. I completely agree that there must be a safe harbor for all of these descriptive work that does not make it to you know the flashy uh, papers. But I, I can imagine so many hours of work can be avoided by having this kind of studies in which things such as the quality of a mouse model or the results of a particular genetic uh, mutation or the genetic profile that they don't give up anything that is incredibly uh, interesting, quote unquote, but that is available uh, for the world. Because yeah, otherwise, as you said, you're bound to do it again. Someone else in some other place in the world will do it again and they will never know. 
uh, the, the the answer was somewhere uh, there. I think it's very valuable. Um, so I'm glad that the AI is taking on that responsibility. And and I think as going back to my my um, my point about having a society journal, I think as a scientific society that understands the importance of this of these kind of knowledge. Yeah, it, it makes sense that they, they they do it, and that is a really yeah, good yeah. good word. Yeah, and as I as I put out on social media quite a bit, I like to brag that we have the most reasonable editorial board in the business. And you know, I I think that we really pride ourselves on on making sure that that the review process and the decision process is as easy as possible for the for the authors and and as fair as possible as well. Well, we like to keep things reasonable and fair, but we also like to ask a fun question at the end here. So I guess the question would be, if you weren't a scientist or a journal editor or anything related to immunology, what would you do and why? So, so I mean, I think the, the alternative career that I've always imagined and, and maybe will be the retirement project when in the future is is that I always really wanted to be more of a writer and not not a scientific writer, but you know, maybe more fiction, I think. Um, and you know, when I was a kid, I I really wrote um, you know, like police stories and and things that were really more creative writing. And um, and that's something that you know I've always wanted to get back to and if if I had a little bit more time. And as you can imagine, you know. Being a chair and editor in chief takes up a fair amount of time, um, but but that's actually you know one of the fun things is that being editor in chief um, gave me the opportunity to write some editorials that are I, I would say a fair bit less serious than um, than any of the science that goes into the journal, and and I've talked a little bit about um, uh, what goes into the journal, but you know talked a little bit about some other scientific aspects as well. And, um, you know, and I think that's been that's been fun and at least getting it out there and and having feedback from one or two people that have actually read them. And um, and and so that's been rewarding, too. Sounds like a nice career, future career option. I mean, you wouldn't be the first, right? I one of my all time favorite authors was a scientist turned writer, uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, was started his career as a biochemist and then ended up being a father of modern uh, science fiction. So I guess that, you know, the sky is the limit. <laughs> Literally, yes. <laughs> All right. So it's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, thank you very much for joining. And we definitely wish you the best on your continuing work at the at the Mino Horizons, and we hope that you keep getting more uh, more submissions and that the the journal keeps growing and serving this very important segment, which is you know the, a place for all these studies. Thank you for coming on. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at AdaminoPodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com. With feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. <laughs>